and welcome to episode two of Have You Seen? My name's Tom Webb. And I'm Kieran Lefort. Uh, each week, Tom and I will be pitching each other films that we like for whatever reason or another and we think the other one should see. And then the week after, we'll review those films and pitch each other films for next week. So, last week I pitched Kieran The Andromeda Strain. It's a 1970s B-movie. Uh, it's a sci-fi film about a satellite that crash lands to Earth, brings something with it and causes devastation. Loads of people die within this town. Um, and a group of scientists take it back to a lab and they basically have to find out what's gone wrong, why are these people dead. Um, that's essentially the crux of the film. So, Kieran, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, to the point where I actually forgot that I was supposed to be taking notes and oh, that, realised oh, that an, an hour had gone past and I hadn't actually written anything. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, um, you, I remember you said last week that you didn't. You thought I might not like the pacing of it. Yeah, uh, and though it was, it was very slow. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind that so much because it was always interesting. Yeah, that's good. Every scene has something creative about it, usually in kind of like a technical way. Uh, uh, whether it's the way things are framed or the edits or, you know, just the the production design. Uh, there was always each... I was looking... I was enjoying whatever the scene was going on at that moment and realising that I was seeing all these creative things and that there would be another one along in the minute and was looking forward to that, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Mm. And I remember mentioning last week the creative editing uh, uh, with yeah. the split screen and things like that. I can't remember if I mentioned or not the diopter lens that they you used. You did, yeah, yeah. I really like the, the, the split diopter work. Yeah. Like when, uh, when they go to collect one of the scientists and you can see on either side, it's, uh, um, I'm going to get slightly technical, uh, it, it's shot in an aspect ratio called 235 to one or scope which is super widescreen and uh on either side uh filling the two extreme thirds of the screen are the faces of and kind of the torsos of uh these two military men who've come to collect one of the scientists to take him to the lab uh, and as the scientist's wife asks is does that man out there have a gun you can see a guy they used split diopter lens and in the middle in the center third of the frame is uh, a private with his rifle yeah. Uh, so it's focused on the foreground and the background at the same time. It, yeah, stuff like that was really good. Yeah, no, I, I really liked it. And it's, it's the sort of thing I think I, I, I said at the time that one of the reasons I really like the film is that people don't really do that much these days. No. And it's, you know, people kind of, I don't know, directors or cinematographers, there are a few little tricks that seem to have just fallen by the wayside, mm. which is a real shame. Yeah. The uh, the other stuff I noticed was in the in the town, when they're finding all the dead bodies in the town earlier, uh, the framing of some of the shots of the helicopter... So there'll be two guys standing over a body looking at it and the, the shot is essentially from their feet up. But also in one corner you will have the, the helicopter hovering overhead. Uh, and it's kind of... I really hesitate to say this. The only person who really does framing like that these days is Michael Bay. But he does it for half a second and then moves on to something else because he's got ADD. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, wasn't, uh, it wasn't as stripped down as I was expecting after you pitched it last week. Uh, because essentially you said it's four scientists, a baby, and an old drunk man in a lab, and that's it. Yeah, I yeah. Wa- I, honestly, I wasn't expecting any other supporting cast. Yeah, no, there's a few people milling yeah. about, and there's a few other little extra bits in here and there. Yeah, but it's essentially the core of the story. Really, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just those those few people. Mm. I did find out that that set, uh, uh, the the um, I think they call it the nest. I think they refer to it as. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember. Anyway, the the set, which is a, a multi-leveled uh, science lab with various cleaning procedures as you proceed down through the levels, 
uh, cost three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy to make. Wow! Uh, and involved them cutting a hole in the floor of soundstage seventy feet deep and thirty feet wide. Wow. Okay. So they really went for it then. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Or maybe it's the other way around, 30 feet deep and 70 feet wide. But still, that's a pretty big hole. It is a big hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, so was there anything about the film that you didn't like? Um, I think there are, a, there are a few plot holes. Right. Why don't the vultures die when they're eating the, uh, when they're eating the meat of the quote-unquote diseased human bodies? Right, yeah. Uh, why does nobody think which way the wind might be blowing... If That's this is a, if they have suspicions that it's an airborne, you know, an airborne mm. virus, for lack of a better phrase, why does nobody think? Oh well, the wind is blowing to the east. We should warn all the towns over to the east to get everybody out. Right, right. Yeah. Especially if it's killed people so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I might have fallen asleep and missed a bit at the end, but I, this is not a spoiler. It's a forty-one-year-old film. Uh, the, the quite a lot of the crux of it is one of the scientists is given a key yes that he has to use to switch off yes the the, the fail-safe atomic device that's system. right yeah it's essentially yeah. There, there is a bomb in the lab so if it gets to the point where they think something is going to go severely wrong then they'll blow the lab up and destroy whatever's in it hmm. uh, but the man with the amazing chest rug has yeah. the key and he, he has he once they set once they set the bomb to explode he has five minutes to find a substation and switch it off absolutely yeah if it's been set in error yeah yeah well also there's a second kind of nuclear thread to the story right. where that they want the president to authorize nuking the town yes and then they discover that nuking it will only make the thing grow exactly yeah right well the scientists stop the president doing that don't they yes yes and matey boy with the chest rug stops the bomb going off yes and then at the end they make mention of the fact that the thing has grown massively and is moving, is being blown out over the sea where it all... Yeah. yeah. Well, basic, that doesn't make any sense. Well, no, it does. There, there, I think there is an essential little bit that you missed. Okay. Ba- basically, what they discover is that the uh, the Andromeda strain, which is effectively a virus or, yeah. a, or a germ, uh, is constantly evolving. And basically, it gets to the point where they believe that a nuclear explosion will kill it and then it starts to evolve, and they start to realise that the energy from a nuclear ex- explosion will, will accelerate a- actually the mutation, accelerate, yeah. The, yeah. you know, actually make it worse and potentially kill more people. Um, in fact, what's quite interesting is that none of the scientists save the day. It just ha- happens that the the strain of germ mutates into a harmless form. So, essentially, the the the, the problem sorts itself out. And and the actual uh, the actual um, threat is the fact that they've ordered nuclear strikes. So half a dozen blokes went into a bunker for absolutely no reason. Absolutely, yeah, Brilliant. because they didn't know that it was going to get. And that's what I quite like about it is the fact that it's not really about whether the the, the germ is the threat. It's about whether the humans acting on the information they have at any given time could have caused either. You know, nuking a town, nuking the lab, or potentially, you know, nuking half of 
the United States. And it all depends on what, what information they're getting at what stage and at what time and how that is communicated mm. within an outside world. So that's where all the attention comes from. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I really like. Mm. So in the end, it doesn't really matter how the problem gets resolved. I just didn't get where the super strain or whatever they call it had come from because uh, the man with the chest drug had switched off the, the nuclear bomb in the lab uh, and they'd stopped the president from nuking the town. So that was all the nuclear threats out of the way. Yeah. Yet still somehow this virus was super and yeah, a big well, cloud and was heading well, over the, towards the sea. And I just didn't think that where that had come from was communicated particularly well in the film. Okay. No, I think I think the what they kind of they don't really pay that the virus is still at large in that town, hmm. as it were, whilst they're in the lab and yeah. they just happen to have a sample of it on the on the satellite. Hmm. Um, so the threat of the virus you know, basically they're in the lab to contain to figure out how to contain the virus to just that town um and in the end it just pans out that the virus mutates into a harmless form and it doesn't matter that the the virus then dissipates off over the Fair ocean enough. it's you know that that's by the wayside and it, i think it's more it's more to do with highlighting the the reaction that mankind has and and how they would react to a given situation so you know there are various points at the film uh, the film where you're you're with the scientists you're like yeah go on you know set the bombs off because you, yeah. you've got to do that now otherwise it's, it's going to you know destroy the earth and then 20 minutes later like oh my god if they'd actually done that what would have happened you know mm. it, it would have you know killed tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people needlessly mm. i'm just looking down my notes here nobody is young and good looking that would never... If they made that today, that would never happen. Yeah, yeah. It, it would well, be populated by underwear models. Absolutely. Well, what's quite interesting is I think there is a thing at the... I, I don't know who mentions it. It might be one of the people who are assembling the team of scientists where they stipulate why these people have been chosen. Mm. And it's not just because they're the foremost of their field. It's well, because... Well, one is p- p- what, particularly particular because... It, well, one of them is picked in particular because he is a single man. Yeah, exactly. So he's the one given the key. So he, they, they know that he has no ties so he can make the best judgment well, call exactly they yes yeah they, they you're showed a sheet with percentages on that uh that you know says that he will he will make the uh the head call not the heart call yeah when it comes to if he has to blow the place or not yeah absolutely yeah what did you think of the uh all of the the, the kind of the, the detox bits as they go through the lab that was good i particularly like the yellow level Oh, they, they, put, they put quite a lot of humour into the yellow level. Yeah, yeah, that's what I quite like about it. As well, is that there is quite a bit of humour in it, and mm. particularly um, from Kate Reed's character, uh, she she kind of has this really kind of sar- sarcastic edge she, to her. Now, it took me about thirty seconds into her first scene to go. She's playing Erdis Borgnine. <laughs> really? Okay. That was exactly who she reminded me of. Excellent. Just female. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah. But, yeah. You asked me if there was uh, if there's anything I didn't like about it. Some of the music was awful. Just horrible. Well, you know, it's just seventies B movie. I know, awful, just grating noises. Not even music, just terrible. And there are a couple of uh, really nice uh, overacting seventies pose shots. Right, that they would have put in the trailer. Right, okay. I'm sure. Yeah, we'll have to dig out the trailer. I think. Yes, yes. We'll uh, we'll we'll tweet a link to the trailer if we can find one online. Yeah. Um, I don't think I even know what they did to the uh, to the poor monkey to quote unquote kill it. 
Oh, I do. Actually, I was going to say, actually, I found out what they did yeah, to no, kill I read, the monkey. Yeah, I read about this, and it was, yeah, I'm quite surprised that they were actually allowed to do it. Uh, it says it was overseen by the American Humane Association, mm. so they must have been allowed to do it. Absolutely. But, do you want yeah. to explain the process? Well, essentially, the, they filled the set with a, a CO2 atmosphere, uh, and the, monkey, the box the monkey is in uh, has, has an oxygen environment so it can breathe. Uh, and then when they put the monkey down next to the sample, which is supposed to which is supposed to infect it and kill it, they open the they open the cage. The CO two rushes into the cage or box, I suppose, uh, because it would just get through the bars if it was a cage. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> the CO two rushes into the box and knocks the monkey out. And then a team of assistants rush on from on- off camera with a, with an oxygen mask and revive the monkey. One of the things that I was quite surprised at was the size of the lab rats. I don't know if you happen to notice this. Like I was looking when they they have the monkey and they bring in this lab rat, and you see in one maybe it's just a small monkey. Well, no, no, <laughs> these lab rats were huge, and I looked after it. They're a special. They're a special strain of rat that are specifically bred for scientific research, um, and and they're massive. They're like ten inches to a foot long. That's a big rat. That is a huge rat. And I I just thought, oh, that must be some sort of weird 70s, you know, lens causing a bit of distortion Mm. and a bit of, you know, making it look bigger than it was. But no, it wasn't. It was just a massive rat. I did notice there was a scientific equipment from credit in the opening credits. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. And two other things I really liked in the credits. There are two actors' names I really just just made me laugh, which were Eric Christmas (laughs) and Kermit Murdoch. (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah, it's a wonderful name. Yeah. I might name my firstborn Kermit Murdoch. <laughs> oh, one, there was one shot that really kind of gave me the wiggins, for lack of a better phrase. It was horrifying, which is where you see uh, one of the, the, the jet fighter pilot right. who, uh, the, towards the beginning of the film, uh, uh, a jet fighter is scrambled to fly over the town and find out what's going on and all the yeah, rest of it. Right, yeah. he, later on, he then flies back over the, uh, over the infected zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see a shot inside his cockpit uh, of all the rubber in his uh, oxygen mask crumbling away to oh, dust. Yeah, yeah. That scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> that, there was just something horrifying about it. Like yeah. I don't know. Maybe I thought that it would just continue crumbling and his face would start crumbling next. <laughs> oh, that's why. I, I don't know. There was something about it. Yeah, no, I can remember that clearly. I'm not quite sure how they did it. Um, no, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a great. It's one of those little things that you see it and. You, and at the time, you just think, oh, my God, that's that's horrendous. But you never kind of think of the practical implications of how that actually made it work. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I don't have a clue. Mm. Perhaps, we'll, perhaps we'll see if we can find out sometime. We did talk a little bit about the special effects last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talked about the 3D rotating map yeah. that was created using camera tricks and all, yeah, all the rest yeah. of it. It does just look like... It looks like CG. Yeah, it does. It's really it's, quite weird, isn't it? It's it, yeah, it is very much ahead of its time. Mm. It looks like the sort of thing uh, Kit would have put up on his display in Night Rider. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When Michael was pulling up to the lab to bust the drug dealers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, I, I, there is a thing. I think on the DVD there is a there's a like a making of or a behind the scenes thing, and they actually explain how they did it. And you know, it was really convoluted mm. and and like drawing line drawings on all sorts of sheets of card and then filming those and then lying them down and then filming them again and and it, yeah really complex mm. complex it's a, stuff it's still it's a 41 year old special effect and it still looks pretty decent now absolutely which yeah. is uh, credits everybody involved in it mm, yeah there's one final thing there are two final things actually something i'd never seen before 
and it was uh, a design element or a prop, I guess. Okay. A 24-hour rotary clock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Never seen one. <laughs> I, I remember when we were, I was watching it to, to write notes about the, the thing hmm. for, for the podcast, and I, I remember looking at it and thinking, that it's kind of weird, because you look at it and you think, well, what time is it? How, yeah. And it, does, it takes you a few minutes to actually figure out how you read it. Yeah. It's just kind of weird when you, it's an everyday object like a clock. You expect to just be able to glance at it and know exactly what information it's giving you. Whereas that, it does it does throw you quite a bit. Mm. And uh, one one other thing, a small detail I noticed, which might be the the detail we can we can leave this on. Uh, you talked about the the shot where uh, the scientists are looking in through the doors and windows yes. of all the houses in the town. And everything is black apart from uh, a portrait rectangle around them. Mm-hmm. looking through all the windows, and then other rectangles come up with what they see. Yeah. You failed to mention the gratuitous breast shot. <laughs> Did I? Okay. Maybe I, ju- maybe I just glossed over that, but yeah. So that's a thumbs up from me for the Andromeda Strain, uh, a slow-paced but inventive uh, sci-fi B-movie. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, last week, I pitched Tom, Team America, World Police. Um I said last week I didn't know if there was any point giving a plot synopsis, and I'm not sure this week there's any point giving a plot synopsis, but I shall try. Um, Team America are a group of the the best the US has to offer, and they they fight uh, terrorism uh, around the world and keep the world safe, mostly by destroying it. Uh, um, uh, It's it's a satire, an an action satire uh, made with puppets by uh, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the crew behind South Park. I think it's very funny. Uh, let's see if Tom thinks it's funny. Okay, well, I'll start off by saying I liked it. I didn't love it, but I did like it. Um, That's pretty much rifle as well, actually. Yeah. I don't, there are little bits that make me roar with laughter and some bits that ju- I just don't find funny. Yeah, for me, I found that, like a lot of the stuff that Trey Parker and Matt Stone do, if it's really out there and really, really stupid, it can be really, really funny. But it has to be consistently like that. Where or they either do the stuff where they're kind of it's kind of a gentle parody, and then that's really funny in itself. Yeah. Uh, and what I what I found difficult about this was that it it was either one or the other, moment to moment. So no sort of consistent tone. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I can see that. I, I tended to find the stuff that I mean, it could have been an action movie. Any action movie was just done with puppets. Yeah. I tend to find that that's the funnier stuff. So if it was just a normal scene. Uh, and the dialogue could have just been lifted from a, from any action movie you like. It, mm. That, I found, I tended to laugh more at that. The things I really, really did like about it, first off are the songs. I thought you might. That, I mean... The, I told you you'd be song, humming them. Yeah, yeah, all of the songs are brilliant. I mean, the mo- montage was just... I mean, that is just perfect. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it made me think about montages i've seen in the past yeah. and thought yeah they're right actually yeah you do have to fade out when there's a montage exactly yeah, yeah. Well, it just not just that it's just that if you do fade it out then you do imply a greater passing of time and yeah. things like that which yeah. had never really occurred to me but <laughs> watching it, i was like yeah they're right there um and you know the cinematography it, again it's like a like a brookheimer or a michael bay film it's a you know it looks huge and epic yeah, I think as I, mentioned, as I mentioned last week, it mm. was shot by uh, Bill Pope, who is uh, like a blockbuster cinematographer. I think he did like I think he did the Spider Man movies, the yeah, Sam Raimi Spider Man films. He did and, Matrix. Oh, there we go then. Yeah, Back so I mean, me. yeah, yeah. I, I, he did loads of stuff. Uh, um, so I loved all of that, um, and like I said, I, I preferred the comedy when it was played straight. Um, the one of the little montages within the film that I really particularly liked was the one to the song uh, "Freedom Isn't Free." 
Where he's walking around Washington, D.C. Exactly. Yeah. And I, it, it was basically, for the people who haven't seen it, most of the film, the puppets are on puppet-sized sets. Uh, so, you know, you've got their lair, for the better, for want of a better word, um, and it's all to scale and all that kind of stuff. But there's a couple of montages where you're actually in the real world and you have the puppet in the foreground and, you know, the Lincoln Memorial in the background or, you mm. know the uh, the white house and it and it, it was just such a nice idea that i hadn't really seen before and i wasn't expecting either no but. i think i think all of that might have been stolen and shot on video as well yeah yeah if you look at the stock it's much different to the rest of the film yeah i think it, i i suspect it was kind of done illicitly without permission sort of thing you know i think they just ran out and did it i get that get that impression yeah. um but then i think that kind of adds to it and one of the other things you mentioned last week was ba- basically Kim Kim Jong Il being Cartman. Yeah, and yeah, you couldn't be. Ah, oh, Hans Briggs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, he's just yeah, exactly. Um, and very brave of them to pick him as their villain. I would suggest. Um, I know they did, the, they did the same with Saddam Hussein in uh, the South, South Park. Park movie. Yes, that's true. That's um, true. So, you know, they must have some seriously good lawyers, I would say. <laughs> You'd hope. <yes. laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's a brilliant, brilliant Star Wars reference. Is it the Cantina Band? Yeah, yeah. When, they, when they go into the... When he goes into... I, don't know what you call it, I suppose it is a bar, really, isn't it? It's a ca- yeah, yeah, cantina yeah. in the Middle East, and they're playing, the, they're playing a kind of Middle Eastern version of the cantina theme. Yes. Um, that, that made me laugh out loud. Um, the other bit that I thought was really, really clever and a brilliant idea was when two of the team are trapped in a room and uh, a pair of panthers are released into oh, the yes. room, which are just a pair of normal-sized black cats, which obviously against the puppets makes them look huge. I thought that was a genius idea. Mm. Yeah, I, I do. one of the things I like is they make no attempt to hide that these are puppets. No, not at all. Uh, especially no. the, the one of the things that makes me laugh is... Uh, the the opening scene where they stop mm-hmm. the terrorists destroying Paris yeah. and destroy Paris yeah. is where the the two of them face off and it looks like it's been an epic martial arts battle yeah. and because they're puppets they just kind of flail towards each other and wave their arms <laughs> yeah, absolutely, around absolutely yeah yeah one of the things I did I loved about that scene which just I mean it just caught my eye and really made me laugh was the fact the cobblestones in Paris were all croissants yes yeah <laughs> I just thought that was a really nice little touch as well the other one of the other details I, I like is um, whenever you're shown a new location that its name comes up on the screen yes and it's given its distance from america is given absolutely yeah yeah. but the one i really like is for panama central america and it's uh like 300 miles south of real america (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i think uh like i said earlier i didn't i didn't love it but i did enjoy it and i did like it and i mean it is just a minefield of quotes Yes. I mean, you can, I'm sure that, like you said, in everyday conversation every now and then, you'll, yeah. you will hear something that just comes straight out of it. But then that's like any good cheesy action film. Yeah. It has to be a minefield of quotes. Matt Damon is going to be haunted for the rest of his life. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, you do hear stories of him saying how much he loves it. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, all credit to him for having a sense of humour about it, I say. There's also a story about George Clooney saying he'd have been disappointed if he wasn't in it. Oh, Even really? given how his character is treated in <laughs> yeah, the film. Absolutely. I can imagine they've got quite a good sense of humour about themselves mm. and about that sort of thing. Was there anything other than the the inconsistent tone that you didn't particularly like? Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, that's the thing. I found that 
the bits that I didn't, t- I tended not to like were the bits where it got really kind of silly and really over the top. Which you know, I can understand why you would do that in a film like this. But it, for me, it was just it was much funnier when they they pulled it back and kept it to mm. the level that you would for a normal action movie. Mm. So, you know, there were bits of it that I just thought, you know, there were bits of it where I was kind of like, well, you didn't need to push it that far, and no. it could have been just as funny. No, but they tended to do that with South Park as well. Absolutely, yeah. there'll be there'll be a gag and it's funny, and then they'll just drive it into the ground for the next three minutes. Yeah, and it's not funny anymore. Yeah, yeah. there was one detail I was going to ask you if you'd noticed. Right? Did you see the statue in Kim Jong Il's? Uh, uh, palace no it's a big statue of Kim Jong-il yeah it's a man painted really yeah and there's a deleted scene where at the very end it turns its head oh I didn't notice that I mean I I can now you've said it I can remember there being the statue but it didn't occur to me that it might actually be an actual painted man (laughs) so Team America is great fun worth a watch and you will undoubtedly start quoting it the minute you finish watching it um, I think it's time to move on for the pitches for the next episode. Okay, dokie. Um, I've specifically picked you a film based on what you've already seen. Um, Andromeda Strain 2? No, not Fast Andromeda Pussycat Strain 2. Killer, killer? No. <laughs> it is the A movie that went alongside the B movie of Andromeda Strain. So uh, they were released as a double bill. Mm-hmm. You would have gone into the cinema, you would have seen Andromeda Strain, and then you would have been followed by the big budget movie afterwards mm-hmm. um it's actually a film that created a genre which is quite rare mm-hmm. um and i've also i've got a quote from the leading man and i if you remember back uh, to last week i quoted gave you a quote about uh, faster pussycat kill kill yes you did uh, about how great it was and then you didn't like it um this <laughs> so one. this bodes well <laughs> well i'm hoping this will work the other way around The quote's from Burt Lancaster, who is the star of the movie. And he described it as, the worst piece of junk I ever made. Fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think this is a bit harsh, considering that the movie cost $10 million to make. There were two stars. Well, actually, no, there were were quite a few stars, but the two main guys in it are Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin. They both got paid their usual fee for being in a movie, and they both took 10%. Right. The film went on to make $100 million. So they did pretty well out of it, this they, worthless piece of junk. Then. They got paid more than the budget for the film, mm. effectively. Mm. That's all about having a good agent, isn't it? It is, absolutely, yeah. Um, so I'm sure you're dying to know exactly what this genre-creating A-movie is. And it's a fantastic film called Airport. I am aware of Airport. Okay, so in, in a way, actually, it kind of created two genres because it created the disaster movie and... Um, and it, when I say disaster movie, I, I specifically mean the disaster movie where there are, like, the top-notch A-list cast. There'd be, like, five A-listers, like Towering Inferno, like any of the airport Poseidon movies. Adventure, Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon yeah, Adventure. Yeah. It, th- I mean, this was the first one in that vein. Um, it stars uh, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, George Kennedy, Jacqueline Bissett, Gene Seberg. I mean, there's a whole host of big names from the 70s. I nearly met Jacqueline Bissett recently. Really? Yeah, a film festival in France. Okay, that's kind of weird. Anyway, carry on. Um, It's directed by George Seaton. He's best known for Miracle on 34th Street. And as I said, you know, Burt Lancaster, who was in Birdman from Alcatraz, From Here to Eternity, Dean Martin, everybody knows. Yeah. You know. Um, The plot is kind of difficult to sum up 
because like many of these big disaster movies it's lots of interwoven plots mm. set around an incident but essentially all i need to know is there's lots of a-listers on an airplane it gets in trouble no that's not what happens what? no i am disappointed <laughs> because this is airport and it's about there's uh, lots of a-listers in an airport <laughs> and it gets in trouble kind of okay good so basically uh set in an airport Burt lancaster runs the airport that's his job the uh it's snowing the snow's coming in they it's getting late in the day they're getting close to their curfew where they can't use certain runways because of housing and this kind of stuff one of the planes comes into land and as it comes from the runway to the taxiway it misjudges and gets stuck in the snow so it's half on the runway half off that closes their main runway down the other runway the planes will be taking off over a series of houses in a residential area Uh, so they've got a curfew uh, in place and there's a whole hoo-ha about whether the plane should be taking off or not whether they'll get sued and all this kind of stuff so that's what on the surface Burt Lancaster has to deal with he also has to deal with the fact that his marriage is disintegrating because he's working so much Dean Martin's character is a captain uh, who's preparing to do an assessment of another captain on a flight to Rome um, it's more difficult to go into their storylines because uh, I don't really want to give too much away about them um, there's also a nice comedy B story which is Helen Hayes and Jean Seberg um, Helen Hayes for those people who don't know is really kind of famous for playing the little cute old lady um, she was in loads of Disney live action movies like um, I think she was in The Love Bug and stuff like that I'll probably recognise her you would her. Yeah, yeah she yeah. plays the typical sweet old dear mm. um, she's, it, she's what Betty White is doing these days exactly, but with less swearing a- absolutely yeah, yeah. A- and she, what's great about this is they kind of play on that because she's actually a stowaway and she she just you, she's basically a con artist who cons her way onto flights okay. across America to visit her family um, so they're kind of dealing with this sweet old con lady at the same time as all of this trouble's happening and basically everything happens at once and, and like any disaster movie, it's all about how all the problems get resolved. Um, the one person I haven't mentioned yet is probably my favourite character. Okay. Played by George Kennedy, who is famous for being in Police Squad, Naked Gun. That's where most people would know him for, I think. Yeah. Um, he plays a character called Petroni. And he's it's already a brilliant name. Exactly. And he's salt of the earth, working man, engineer, and he's the guy they call in to sort out the plane, get the plane moving. Um, and he's the only character to feature in all four of the airport movies because they made three sequels after yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of which are really good, apart from the last one, which is so bad. Airport 80, was that the last one? No, Airport 79, The Concorde. Okay. Uh, which features a terrorist attack on the Concorde with Amazing. a guided missile, and I believe Concorde does a loop the loop in it. It's really. How awful. can that be a bad film? <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> sounds about, That sounds like Team America. Well, exactly. So maybe what we'll do. Um, I I do love. I actually love certainly the first three of the films. Okay. They've all got merits. So we may cover some of the other airport movies okay. at a later date. Um, there is something I'm looking forward to on on this podcast as we carry on. What's that? Getting into the 21st century with the movies you picked for me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, I know. I've realised. I've, I've, I had a reason, or for at least out of flares. <laughs> well, I figured you know it was a nice little compliment that you would get. You know, you'd you'd get to see a we're B very, movie than the A movie. We're so. very slowly progressing. I've had 1965, 1970, and 1970. Well, they made a lot of good movies back then. Apparently you know? so. Um, 
so I mentioned that it kind of kicked off two genres in a way. The other thing that it really kicked off was airplane. Yes. Uh, so that in it, you know, airplane in itself created the the almost direct spoof franchise of films. Yeah. So where you know, for example, nowadays you have scary movie and you know, like epic movie and all of those, they're, which they're, are amazing. Yeah, I mean they're pretty pretty terrible nowadays. Yes. Um, but watching this film, uh, you will be able to see plot lines, uh, and in fact, actually from the first two movies, Airport and Airport seventy five. Um, Airplane is pretty much ripped off of those two movies, plus another movie that was made in the 50s called um, Zero Hour, I believe. I remember hearing uh, the Zuckers saying how they essentially ripped off the entire plot and most of the dialogue from Zero Hour. Yeah, they do. And um, a lot of the the B stories come from the airport films. And I think the whole... Am I going to be able to watch this without laughing? No, no, that's the thing. I think when it was was originally released, it was actually critically quite slammed and nobody really liked it, but it did really well at the box office. And I think it's better to watch this film since you've seen Airplane. Okay. Because there are bits in it that are just going to make you laugh because it's quite camp and kitsch in places, um, which obviously at the time it was melodrama and it was supposed to be... but some of the mundane stuff it actually makes it quite funny so the opening scene is almost the same as airplane and you can't help but think about all the gags about the white zone the green zone and the red zone oh God, for the parking yes. and all of that kind of stuff so yes. um it's that's why it's so it's so fun to watch um i think it is quite from what memory serves it's quite a long film as you would expect for something like this but it i would say it's the perfect sunday afternoon film then I shall attempt to watch it on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of film that you can just put on and relax to, and it, it just seems to go on forever, but it, it's entertaining and suspenseful and enthralling all the same. Um, again, I really, really like this film. You will see that there is, yet again, creative use of split screen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite as creative uh, in the, that department as Andromeda Strain, um, there will be moments where you'll sit there thinking, oh, that's a really weirdly framed shot, and then suddenly a split-screen sec- segment will pop up, and you go, oh, that's why it was set yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Like um, but no, it's, it's, it's just great. It's just brilliant. There's some good quotable lines in it, uh, particularly from George Kennedy. Um, and Yeah, and it's, it's just a, a really good Sunday afternoon movie. Um, what I find quite funny and bizarre is that like i said earlier it was pitched as a double bill with andromeda strain Hmm. so you started with a quite frankly possibly terrifying film about you know global uh a a global holocaust of you know with disease and outer space and science and atomic explosions followed by an airport under siege of snow everything's going wrong and they build it as a great day out for the family (laughs) <laughs> a tremendous day out for the family, and I was—I thought that I wouldn't say either are particularly family family films. No, but, you know, great films, but not necessarily, you know, one for all the family. I would have thought. Well, I hope a great day out for the family turns into a great Sunday afternoon in for me. Yeah, absolutely. So do I. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm now going to try a, a, a remarkably uncreative way to get the title of our show into my pitch. Okay, I look forward to this. Okay, have you seen the man who killed Don Quixote? No. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is a pet project for Terry Gilliam. Okay. Uh, starring Johnny Depp mm-hmm. and Jean Rochefort, a French actor. Okay. Uh, Vanessa Paradis. Right. Uh, Christopher Eccleston, Miranda mm-hmm. Richardson, Ian Holm. That's quite a cast. It is. There's a reason you haven't seen it. Okay. It's never been made. 
Right. What I am pitching to you today is the documentary about the not making of that film. Okay. Uh, it's called Lost in La Mancha, uh-huh. uh, and a documentary crew. Terry Gilliam on all his films likes to have a documentary crew following him, not the guys who make the behind-the-scenes fluff pieces that get right. sent out as publicity, yeah, yeah. Uh, but an actual documentary crew. Okay. Uh, and these are the guys who made The Hamster Factor, which is a very well-regarded documentary on the making of 12 Monkeys. Okay. Uh, they also made uh, a documentary on uh, behind-the-scenes of Three Kings, mm-hmm. which was a production beset by problems, right? Uh, including, I believe, the director headbutting the star, or oh, the other God. way around, right. I can't remember which. Okay. Uh, I have to say that for legal reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and they have made they've made one uh, feature film uh, called Brothers of the Head which was about five years ago Okay, a low budget film about Siamese twins in a rock band oh I remember that oh, yeah, I remember the posters for that yeah, yeah. Um, so these guys are there to document the entire production at Gilliam's behest okay. uh, and the production falls apart almost immediately right uh, they can't get people in for costume fittings. One of the leads hasn't been signed to a contract three weeks before shooting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, day two, a flash flood washes away a load of equipment. Oh, no. um, it's just a disaster. But watching the disaster unfold in this documentary is quite gripping viewing. I can imagine. I mean, it must have been a nightmare for everyone involved, especially if it's a, you know such a, a project that's got a huge amount of heart behind it and love in you know, invested in it. It's also well. Uh, also, on top of that, it's a Gilliam production, mm. and Terry Gilliam does not do things by halves. No, absolutely. If yeah. you think of things like Time Bandits, Twelve Monkeys, mm-hmm. Brazil, uh, Brazil, yeah. uh, uh, Baron Munchausen, which mm-hmm. uh, at times in this documentary, uh, Gilliam compares this to. Okay, he has crew members who have come with him through that, and right. Munchausen was just like was his nightmare production. Yeah, uh, where just things just fell apart all around him, and he mm-hmm. got this reputation. Right. Of kind of like the guy who couldn't keep control of a set. Right. Um, where, in that, as in actual fact, he can. Mm-hmm. And it's forces ar- around him that really kind of uh, yeah. uh, cause things to disintegrate. Right. Uh, literally disintegrate in this film. <laughs> right. Gilliam himself even has a quote in the film where in one of his interviews he said, There are so many echoes of Munchausen that just keep happening. Okay. That's kind of intriguing. I mean, obviously, being fans of movies and film, it, you know. The creation process is something you know both of us are really interested in. So it's always fascinating to see these kind of documentaries mm. that really probe into things like that. And even if it is you know going disastrously wrong, you can probably learn more from that than you can from when you see it all go right. Mm. Well, this goes back before even before Gilliam's version. There's a, a short section that kind of talks about how Don Quixote is kind of cursed as a film project. Right. Uh, loads of people and tried have tried and failed to make it, including very famously Orson Welles, who right. almost went mad trying to make a version. Okay. And you get to see a little section of that oh, as well. Intriguing. The only surviving footage of Gilliam's film is edited into this documentary. Oh wow! That's so you cool. get to see the, maybe the dozen or so shots he, wow. he managed to complete. Wow! It's fascinating to watch, mm. and you kind of. I came when I was watching it again for this. I came away with the feeling that we might have been robbed of a really great film okay that's kind of intriguing i mean it, i mean it, it sounds absolutely fascinating so it also works as an interesting portrait of gilliam right uh and his passion mm-hmm. uh for for projects uh yeah. and just his determination to get things done and the way he manages to get people to come on board for things 
Uh, his uh, uh, production designer has a great quote. He says, he's the one who sees things that the rest of us humans can't see. <laughs> Which nice. I think is a very apt description of Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Things to look out for. Um, the casting of the giants. Right. That sounds like a movie in its own. <laughs> it's, it's kind of spread out a bit. The giants appear occasionally throughout the film right and the casting and the screen test scene <laughs> had me rolling around with laughter okay um and stay tuned to the end of the credits as well okay for the final giant's appearance right okay um what else what else what else uh there's lots of little bits that are done in gilliam-esque anima- animations okay so the the way he's done the monty python animations yeah they've done little bits like that in there oh that's cool. uh, and your voiceover for this is jeff bridges oh excellent you can't get better really can you no I think there's a chance I might have given too much away already. Uh, I really like this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, uh, it's kind of quite... It's fascinating. I really enjoyed watching it again. Um, we say this... We've said this at the end of every pitch so far, but I really, I really hope you like it. Yeah, well, yeah. I have to say, you know, from what you've said so far, it sounds like a fantastic thing to, to, to witness, if you like. Um, I, it's very rare that you get to kind of peek behind that curtain and see things, particularly when they go wrong. I think you know it's quite a brave move to, for Gilliam to let them actually do what they've done. Yeah, so many quote-unquote so. behind-the-scenes documentaries yeah. on, on films are just puff pieces. Everybody got along great. Absolutely. Everything went perfectly. Nothing goes perfectly on a film set. Yeah. Ever. Anybody no. who says it went perfectly is lying to you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really, really keen to see this, actually. It sounds really good. So that's episode two of Have You Seen? Next week, reviews of Lost in La Mancha and Airport. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HYS Podcast. We'll uh, try and update that with a few links to trailers and all sorts of stuff that we've been talking about in the podcast. We should probably also put those on our blog. What's the blog address? Uh, the blog address is haveyouseenpodcast.wordpress.com. Do we have any other way that uh, people who listen to this could contact us? We do. We have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash haveyouseenpodcast. We should work on shortening all these URLs, shouldn't we? We, we should indeed. Maybe and I'll we should do that for probably next week. work on putting some things there for people to look at. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that'll happen. That's the end of uh, episode two. Disengage, end, program, stop. <laughs>